It's the Jim Meskimen Podcast, and this is the uh, 6th of April, 2015, Star Day, April 6th, 2015, back when I watched Star Trek, and I didn't watch it the, the first season that it actually came out, way back in the 60s, I, I don't know what I was into that back then, I, I think I wasn't really watching television, I was seven years old or eight years old, so I wasn't uh, allowed to watch much TV, and most of it was pretty boring. I didn't quite get it. I remember watching the first uh, episode of Lost in Space and being really baffled by it, but wanting to see more. And then the kids at school talked about Star Trek, but I didn't see probably Star Trek till I was in college. I don't know, long time. But I love how way it started with a star date. And back then, I forget what the star dates were, but they might have been 2015. Anyway, 2015, uh, for me, me and probably a lot of people in my generation, is just an inconceivable date. Like, it just doesn't mean anything. Like, we didn't plan this far. It's it's weird. Or we thought this would be the year of the, you know, the decade of the flying cars, which it might be. Uh, it, the wrist television took so long to get here. Uh, the flying car, the hovercraft, it, it, it all took its time, but now it seems like it's right on the horizon. And indeed, on some of our wrists already. Not on mine, though. I don't want a TV on my wrist. It's bad enough having one in my pocket on an iPhone. And when I say bad enough, I mean it's great to have it, isn't it? So you may have noticed, uh, those of you that listen to this podcast with any regularity, that it doesn't, uh, it's sort of a sprawling mess. I don't really, uh, frankly, write things out. I don't plan things out very well either. I'm not, who has time to plan out a podcast? Well, apparently Alec Baldwin does. He has a very nice one. And it seems to have written intros and a kind of a coherence and interviews famous, interesting people. My podcast is not like the Alec Baldwin podcast, which I recommend highly. It's called, I think, Here's the Deal. And, uh, you know, when you're done listening to this one, by all means, uh, go and visit uh, Alec Baldwin's. But uh, mine is a little more sprawling, and I hope that uh, you appreciate the fact that some of you may, that, uh, you know, I'm speaking as honestly as I can and as intimately as I can about subjects that, you know, some some of which are, are mostly pointless, but others of which are perhaps a little, little of interest to you. If you're interested in, um, in the artistic life and uh, the, sh- the show business life and all that nonsense... And I try to be honest with you about what's happened and what's happening. And, of course, I'm I'm selling something. I'm selling myself. I'm selling my TV show, Impress Me. By the way, did you watch Impress Me? See there? That was a segue of a, a preordained sell into a hard sell. Now, this is the hard sell. Watch Impress Me, okay, on Wednesday, or I will never do another podcast ever. That's a lie. But uh, Wednesdays, we have our show, Impress Me, on Pop TV. Not everybody can find Pop TV. Not everybody has it on their cable provider. But those that do are living better lives. Let's just say they're, uh, I don't want to say they're more intelligent. They're sexier. They're, uh, they make more money. But I've just sort of said it. Who knows but that it may be true. Uh, it's a great show, I think. It's very different. It's unlike any other show on the air, uh, and I think it's quite brilliant, and uh, I've said a lot about it, but it has a lot of impressions in it. Well, like, uh, all right, now Jimmy Stewart, for example, is an impression that used to be coin of the realm. It used to be uh, any impressionist worth his dime could, could, could do Jimmy Stewart. And, 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 and there's a reason why, because, uh, you know, one thing that impressionists do as they bring back into our consciousness just how doggone great some of these actors were. And Jimmy Stewart was, well, he was about one of the best going. And what was so appealing about Jimmy Stewart was, I think, not just this kind of homespun, uh, you know, uh, uncle-like quality that he had or, or down the street next-door neighbor, but also this kind of 
well, you had a kind of an integrity that you don't you don't hear voiced much very often nowadays. Uh, nowadays, movies and, and TV shows they, they sort of want to always have a, a a hero that's an anti-hero or he's a, he's a dark sort of hero. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, the darkest he ever got was he got kind of cranky. That was about as dark as he got. <laughs> And I love, don't we love to see Jimmy Stewart at his most cranky in A Wonderful Life where he's just at the end of his rope and he's yelling at everybody and he's crabby? It's kind of like in the 90s when we saw Bruce Willis all beat up. Beat up, sweaty, dirty, bloody. You love to see him like that because, you know, that's not him. He's just putting up with that and he's going to, any minute now, he's going to turn the tables on whoever made him so dirty and bloody. And he usually did. But we've been living in the age of, uh, of anti-heroes for a long time. You know, witness the Batman movie and the Batman movie before that and the Batman movie before that and the Batman movie before that. And, you know, you still hear people say, well, you know, I like to explore the dark side of this character. I want to take a look at Spider-Man, but really look at his dark side. I want to take a look at Stalin, but no longer this sort of sugary, sweet uh, Joseph Stalin, but the dark side of Stalin is what I want to look at. And it's like, all right. That's fine, you know, but we've lost, I think, a little bit or relegated to these wonderful past movies uh, any kind of depiction of somebody who has a stitch, a shred, an ounce, a jot of honor. And, okay, you say, well, look around you. Do you see anybody with any honor? Well, no, but we've been illustrating the opposite for so long. It's no wonder. It seems like the great storytellers and the great storytelling groups of the past and the, the cultures of the past that told stories about uh, the hero, uh, were trying to set an example in some way of saying, now, look, you're going to run into this kind of suppression one time or another. You're going you're to be oppressed. You're going to be thwarted. You're going to be countered by different forces. And, uh, you know, you're going to have a choice to make. And sometimes that choice is going to be very rapid. It may be in the blink of an eye. You're going to want to be kind of prepared. You're going to want to kind of have your, your moral viewpoint and when I say moral, I don't mean religious. I just mean, you know, survival, you know, what's best for everybody. You want to have that moral viewpoint already kind of in the chamber because somebody's going to come along and they're going to say something that you're going to have to, you don't want to have to take a long time figuring out just why what they just said or what they just demanded you is rubbing you the wrong way. You want to have your moral compass kind of already calibrated, if you will, so that when things swing south, you're going to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute and be able to explain why. And that's why the great speeches of uh, Gregory Peck, for example, or any of these terrific actors, when they take a moral stand against the Nazis or against, you know, the, the big oil man or the criminal or the monopolist or, you know, the bigot, these great speeches are, are sort of preparing us or could for arguments that we may have to make someday when we encounter bigotry when we encounter people that are closed-minded or prejudiced, because that hasn't gone away. What has gone away, though, is most of the cultural touchstones and the storytelling by which we inform one another, hey, you know, not for nothing, you may have to stand up and say something uh, about this. And how would you say it? How would you phrase it? Rhetoric is interesting, and you might have to have a little rhetoric under your belt someday to... Uh, let someone know why it is that uh, you feel righteously angry at them and uh, why, you know, why you should defend the rights of, of some person who is relatively undefended. You know, it, it is still, unfortunately, a planet where decent, innocent, good people of, of goodwill and uh, who don't intend harm to anybody and who are just trying to get by in the world are mowed down 
by uh, by larger, more unfeeling, insensitive, avaricious forces. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. Probably a lot of you have experienced that for yourself. So it's good to tell each other stories about, uh, well, like I told you before, I love Foyle's War. Foyle, Detective Foyle, um, I forget his first name, uh, is played so brilliantly by Michael Kitchen, uh, is just a great example of someone who, does he have a dark side? No, he has a kind of a bland side, maybe. He's one of these guys who tells the truth, whether it makes that other person feel good or not. Uh, kind of like House did, I guess, or kind of like how Doc Martin does. Only Doc Martin's really kind of nutty that way. And Or the guy in Broadchurch, uh, David Tennant's character, who is so Scottish, though, you might not know what he's doing. Uh, but I don't know. For my, for my money, Foyle's War, such a great show because this guy says the truth, and he says it generally to people that really deserve to have the truth told to them and abruptly. And I guess we all do one time or another. So um, I got this TV show. I'm the star of a TV show. And, you know, at this point in my life, uh, I feel like it's a victory, a personal victory. And it's also, of course, very encouraging that it's more or less about, you know, it's a weird, twisted version of my own life. And so there's that little thrill out of it, I guess. And, and, uh, and I love working with Ross Marquand, who is a sensational actor. I mean, he's really, really terrific. And uh, we're just going to see better and better work from him because he demands a lot of himself. He's, uh, he's just terrific. I, I really enjoy him. I enjoy his company. He's a very gracious and generous actor to, to work with, as I'm sure anybody on Walking Dead and, and anyone on our show impressed me would say, would make the same observation. But it's funny. I mean, here I am in my 50s now, and uh, I, I really rather expected at various earlier times in my life to be the star of a TV show. However, I'm very satisfied that it's now and that it's this show and these people. And I, I wanted to share with you uh, my strange track with television shows that I was almost a star of. Uh, it's it's kind of funny. It's not. I don't know if it's a cautionary tale or a throw caution to the windinary tale. But I, I met a, uh, an actor just the other day, a very gracious guy who was working on a pilot uh, presentation that I was part of. And he said, you know, your teacher character from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air inspired me a lot to go to college, and uh, it had a big impact on me. And I've heard that before from, from younger people. And that show that I was on, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I played, in one episode I played his teacher, Jeremy Mansfield, which sounds a lot like Jim Meskimen or Jim Marshall who was the teacher, his professor of Western philosophy. And it was based uh, in part on uh, Robin Williams' character, another strange bit of uh, serendipity, uh, from the Dead Poets Society, who was, of course, the greatest teacher in the world. And so my, my character was sort of based on that. I wasn't to do an impression, obviously, but I was supposed to be this great, funny, uh, you know, uh, impressionist uh, professor. And it all came to be because I had a friend in high school named Jeff Pollock, and Jeff Pollock stayed in touch with another friend of mine named Ken Hertz, who is now a, a very successful entertainment lawyer, or he may be beyond that now. He may be in the next echelon above entertainment lawyer. I think he's an entertainment titan of some kind uh, in Valhalla somewhere, or Brentwood. So anyway, these guys uh, had maintained contact with one another and were friends. I was in New York doing improv, and I was in my 20s, I think, or maybe 30. Nah, was I 30? I guess I might have been 30. And Jeff had become the producer, one of the producers of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air show, which was still a pretty young show. I think it was not, not all that far along. Second year in, third year in, maybe. You can correct me if I'm wrong. 
if you know. And uh, so he invited me to uh, be in an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which we would use essentially as a pilot. It would be a pilot for this teacher and for an idea for a TV series based on Jeremy Mansfield that we would then develop a, a, a series for. And uh, so I came out to L.A. I actually very swiftly moved out to L.A. because there was all this attention on... I was suddenly hot. I had heat, which was very odd because you wonder at the time why people all of a sudden want to do deals with you and they obviously really don't know what it is you do or anything about you, but but they've heard that you're someone to do business with. And so I don't know who started this little fire, but there was a little wildfire going under my tuchus and I I suddenly had heat. And people would say that, well, you've got heat. And it was almost like, well, you've got, you know, the kind of typhus that we all want to get. So I was contagious with this popularity that was based on God knows what. I'd done a few commercials and I'd done a lot of improv and I don't know. So, you know, my head was spinning. I was involved with this improv company that I was very dedicated to. Uh, But this offer came up, come and do this show and let's develop something. And then on on the heels of that and also the results of the efforts of an agent that I was working with at the time, there were multiple offers to develop a show starring myself from a couple different studios and people that could actually do a show. And the Fresh Prince one, those producers, that was one of them. That was NBC. And then there were a couple of others. And so I was in the very uh, desirable and yet very uncomfortable position of trying to choose door number one, door number two, door number three. And at the time, I had tremendous loyalty towards this improv company and the people in it. Uh, which was called Interplay. If you ever saw Interplay, we had a, we had an amazing group. Uh, and at the, in our heyday, uh, I, I think it was just one of the most entertaining shows and skillful shows and uh, around. Um, more on that someday. But So I felt very kind of locked into that and yet at the same time wanting to take advantage of this great bunch of attention I was just getting. So uh, at, at a great heartbreak, I turned down the uh, Fresh Prince offer, although I did the show, obviously, uh, but I did not continue on with working on a pilot for them, which, who knows? Who knows? Might have happened. Might have sunk like a stone. Uh, I turned down another one from another major network. I had no idea. We never even discussed what that would ever be. And instead, I took another one, which was more of a variety late night show, because at that very time, 1993-94, there was a big shakeup not just the earthquake of 94, but there was a big shakeup in late night. Chevy Chase was going to have a late night show. He did have a late night show for a while until it tanked. Pat Sajak was going to have a late night show. He did have a late night show until it tanked. I, w- I had was offered to take over his Wheel of Fortune show while he went on to late night, and I turned that down. This is crazy. It's true, though. I mean, I went, you know, I don't want to be a game show host for that amount of money. It really was not too great because, <laughs> I don't know, game show host. Uh, just seemed like a, it was going to be a brand, you know, like the Scarlet Letter. So there was this big shakeup. And so the uh, Fred Silverman Company, the Fred Silverman Company, uh, working with another uh, producer, decided that I would be a perfect kind of bet to develop a show for late night talk show, improv, characters, impressions. You know, they, they threw everything up against the wall. And we actually did a couple of different pilots. And the, the weenie that got me to do it really was that hey, your improv group can be part of it. They can help write it. They can be in it. And I think they just said that to me, you know, to please me. And to and we had no idea how impossible that would make everything. But unfortunately, you know, there were just too, too many people hanging on the lifeboat and not enough people in the lifeboat. And eventually the lifeboat just teetered over 
And those two pilots, well-intentioned as they were, were probably some of the worst things I've ever been involved in, and, and, but, but also at great loss of blood. It was painful. It was hard. We called in a lot of favors, and at the end of the day, it was just garbage. You know, I hate to say it. So, uh, and by that time, a couple of years had gone by, and guess what had happened to my heat? Like all heat, in the laws of thermodynamics, the heat dissipated, and honestly, I've never had it again. Never had that degree of heat, which in a way is fine because that was a false heat. That was a heat based on what? Somebody's hot air. I don't even know whose, but um, certainly I, I stoked it as much as I could. I'm trying to be honest here because who knows? Maybe maybe you are in such a situation. I don't know. Uh, it's possible that this... I know that people always have difficult choices to make. And, you know, you make the choice you make. You follow your heart, as my friend Ben Shelton always says. And uh, I did. I followed my heart. I crashed and burned. But here it is, 2015. That was 1994. In 2015, I'm now the star of this very nice show that I like a lot. I'm very comfortable with, comfortable with the way that I get to work on it, comfortable with the creative uh, direction it's taking, very comfortable with all the people, my co-stars, Amy Castle, Dana DeLorenzo, Ross Marquand, I mentioned Piat Michael, uh, Angela Kinsey, uh, and and our myriad of guest stars, Reggie Brown, Mike Truesdale, Melissa Villasenor, Angela Hoover, a uh, bunch of lovely people. I'm very comfortable with that. And you know what? It's on the air. It's now at a time when, unfortunately, instead of there being 30 channels to watch, there are 75,000 channels to watch, plus the internet. So, you know, it barely makes a ripple right now. But I think the great thing about our show and, and the way it's placed and the way it's all evolved is that people can find it and they can kinda, it can kind of grow on them. That's, that's a great pleasure. I could be on a show like a CSI kind of show, and I could walk in and be the older guy who takes his, you know, scrapes the carpeting and picks up the blood sample and goes, hey, you know, this guy was on methamphetamine, and then, you know, take home a big paycheck. I don't think I would be happier. I think I would have a nicer house, but I don't think I would be happier. So, you know, there you go. That's, that's sort of the yin and yang of life, I guess. Uh, here's an interruption. And welcome back to Pages. With us here in the studio is F.W.W. Sturgler. And uh, you have a beef, you have a lawsuit pending right now, but it's going actively forward. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Well, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, as you know, publishing is a very competitive business. Mm -hmm. And I had created a manuscript and uh, a series of characters uh, some time ago, uh, which I created in good faith and uh, self-published. Uh, a series uh, that began with the first book. It was called The Globet. It was a spot of a small, uh, hairy creature that lived underground and uh, was taken on an exciting adventure by a wizard. Uh, you can see already probably the similarities I to see exactly a very, where this is going, a very yes. lucrative franchise uh, of which I have taken no part of. I have not been acknowledged in any way. And uh, this is this is my beef, as you call it. So now you are suing the strong. estate of J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, we are suing that estate. We are suing uh, the motion picture studio that produced the films. We're suing Peter Jackson, and we're suing uh, the uh, country of New Zealand. Are the stories very similar? I, I, obviously, the well, title is awfully similar. Yes, uh, well, outside of that, uh, there are many, many similarities. My woodland creature... Uh, however, is is not uh, human or humanoid. Uh, he is actually uh, part oyster and part handlebar mustache. But he uh, goes on a very similar sort of adventure with a wizard 
who is uh, not again not a humanoid wizard, but a, a more like a, a collection of bamboo rods. They're looking for a magical uh, ankle bracelet, uh, which can only be destroyed by taking it uh, to a pharmacy and uh, and dousing it with uh, caustic materials. Thematically, though, it's practically identical. When I saw, you can imagine my shock when I went to uh, to, to my local movie house to mm-hmm. see what I hoped would be a, a carefree evening of entertainment, uh, The Lord of the Rings. And uh, it was shocking to me. Well, I can imagine it must have Everything had come with no acknowledgement. Very disconcerting. When did you write The Globet? The Globet was written, of course, over a period of years. Uh, As you can imagine, it's a sprawling tale and one that I invested a great deal of time in my own uh, research into, in my own creative juices. It was written, uh, finished uh, in 1986. I see. Well... You realize, of course, that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote his books much earlier. That's not my understanding. I looked on the poster, and the poster said that the movie was released in, I believe it was 2004. So I'm not a mathematician. But uh, if you take uh, 86 from... We're not really interested in in the math here. That's when the film came out, don't Mm -hmm. you understand? That film is based on the book. Uh, That's, well, in my experience, the book and the film usually come at the same time. I see. The point is that I've suffered emotional and professional uh, damage uh, in every way, and I deserve some recompense, and that is why I'm suing. Now, I'm looking at... Do you know anyone, by the I, way? I don't, and, and I'm beginning to feel that perhaps your case is not a valid one uh, because my producers have just talked to me in my ear and handed me something. You are now suing the estate of Harper Lee because you wrote a book to chill a hummingbird. That's right. I wrote a book about my growing up as a young, uh, a young farm girl. It's a true story. Uh, only the gender has been changed, and how I was nearly killed, and my life was saved by a, a fellow named Goo, Goo Bradley. Sir, I really must protest. I can. I'm... I have a copy of it, an additional copy, if you're interested in see. You'll see there's some true shocking similarities. I feel as though you are just a charlatan. You're out to uh, just get money. Uh, you have well, no of course, validity. that's the easy way to look at it. That's the easy way to dismiss someone who has a valid claim is to just call him a charlatan, isn't it? Is that how you operate in such a perfunctory manner at all times? Mm-hmm. No, sir. I'm just going to have to ask you if you could kindly just please leave the studio. I suppose and... you don't want to know about my lawsuit about Slaughterhouse Eight. No, I don't. And thank you. Well, there you go. So I hope that uh, you don't mind me sharing this kind of intimate stuff with you about my, my TV background. I don't know what my TV future is. Hopefully we'll get to do many, many more seasons of Impress Me. Uh, ben Shelton has confirmed that he has many, many episode ideas in mind, and I trust him, and I trust his creative vision. I'm interested to see where his his very unique mind is going to take all these characters uh, and how he's going to utilize and, and take best advantage of the talent, all the various actors and impressionists. By the way, he's getting letters and and links from people all the time. Apparently, there's just impressionists out there all over the place. And I'm just dying to see what he's going to do with all this. This is all the detritus that he can weave into something magnificent. That episode of uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that I was talking about, where I got to do those impressions and be the world's greatest Western philosophy teacher, uh, it was a great experience. It was it was challenging, but it was fun, and Will Smith was awesome to work with. He later had me back on the show to play a different character a couple years after I'd already kind of screwed the pooch on the pilot, and he was gracious enough to have me back to play another a producer character named uh, 
oh, what was his name, Werner, or Werner, I guess depending on how, how German you were, who was the producer of his cousin Hillary's talk show. And I got to be on that show again for about another six episodes or something. I got to work with William Shatner one time, and that was cool. Uh, but Will Smith really impressed me. He definitely had all this star quality that he's now very famous for. And at the time, he had not done a movie. I don't think he maybe done one little independent film. And I think he'd done, yeah, another kind of art house film, Six Degrees of Separation. But he had not become this blockbuster science fiction guy or uh, the great Muhammad Ali movie that he did. Um, so, you know, he was starting to reach in those directions. And he was just a really sweet, fun, dear guy with a great sense of, of group dynamic and uh, we're all in this together and let's have a good time. I remember going up, we'd go up to the, the dressing room before the taping and we'd all dance around. He'd have us all in a circle, all dancing around. And, you know, it's just nice. It's nice to bring a group together like that because you feel like such an outsider when you're on a sitcom uh, that people are, are working on every week and you're just coming in for that one week. And so anything that uh, the producers or the, or the leads do to kind of bring you all together is kind of fun. And it helps. I think it just helps the energy. makes it seem nice. Anyway, I'll always be grateful to, uh, to Will Smith and really to, to the various people that offered me, you know, such nice opportunities back in the 90s. And there were some really nice people that went out on a limb, frankly, for me. And uh, I didn't uh, always appreciate what their, their generous contributions were. Uh, you know, and I went ahead and I made the decision that I did. And and to be honest, I, I, I don't think that I made the wrong decision. I just know that the whole thing was very, very uncomfortable. And I, even though I thought I was really pretty prepared for it, I wasn't. I wasn't quite ready. I wasn't quite ready to uh, to play it perfectly well, if there is a way to play it perfectly well. Because I think once you get into the world of television, there is so much money, or there used to be anyway, so much money involved and so much stuff at stake and so many reputations, so many jobs. And uh, people get very frightened, and, uh, and rightly so, because uh, it's all very, very tenuous. And it's so far from the basic purpose of an actor and the basic purpose of a creator, which is to make something delightful or to make something, maybe it's not delightful, maybe it's, you know, something that's meant to be horrifying or thought-provoking, to create an effect in an audience. But you definitely want people to feel like their life has been improved somehow by your entertainment and not that they haven't been taken down a peg or weakened or, or, or made worse. Uh, and so that, you know, that effort to do that gets clogged up with all kinds of other intentions and, and money enters into it and it gets very, very complicated. And uh, I, that's why my hat's off to people like Amy Poehler, who did Parks and Recreation, which continued to its very last episode to be a sweet good-natured, hilariously funny, and very entertaining show. There are a few such shows which maintain their integrity and don't sell out completely, and, and I think the stars and the people involved in it are, are very right to be proud of their work in it. And that's, that's what you want to get into this business for. And the rest of it is really all dross. It's just all waste, uh, and it can be very vexing. So I wasn't prepared back in 1994. I'm really super prepared in 2015. I'm having a great time. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to ride this thing and do the best work I can uh, from here on out. And if it's with Impress Me a few more seasons, 10, 15 seasons, uh, I'll be very delighted. But uh, I find that these kind of creative ventures, if you, if you go out with the intention of, of making an audience feel better or to feel something that's going to help them, even if it's just to help them pass the tedious half hour, you know, in a pleasant way and take their minds off their troubles... Uh, you know, there's honor in that, and, and I'm, I'm behind that 
Uh, I don't want to upset people. I don't want to confuse people. There's an awful lot of entertainment that's just out there to confuse people. But anyway, back to the hard sell. Watch Impress Me Wednesday nights, 10.30, 9.30 Central on Pop TV. Where's Pop TV? Well, if you have Time Warner Cable, you can find it. Go to poptv.com. It's got a thing where you punch in your zip code. It'll tell you the channel. I think other cable providers also carry Pop TV. It's not online. Uh, we were online for a while. We were a web series. You need to see our show on the TV. TV is what it's made for. TV. All right. Thanks to Jeff Levin for providing the music. Thanks to Tate Rupert for the improv. Thanks to Ben Shelton, writer, creator, director of Impress Me. It's a hell of a good show. And long may it wave. Talk to you next week. <laughs>